I'm Krim Ray, your host at the One Soccer Nation podcast. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Kristen Cutchin, who is the public venue studio leader, and Mike Woolen, who is the vice president and director of the play market sector at LaBella Associates. Kristen and Mike, thanks for taking the time today. How's it going? Thanks for inviting us. Pretty well. Absolutely. So I just want to I just want to take the time to share a quick story of how we all met. I think Mike, we met first back in uh, 2022 uh, at USL's mid-year event down in Kentucky. I'm not too sure if you remember that. That was at the Kentucky Derby. I do. Yes. Nice event. Yeah, that was a great one. Um, so we met there. And then um, just recently this year down in Miami, I actually ran into you guys again at Soccer X where I met uh, Kristen for the first time. We we were talking about, you know, what you guys do and what we're working on at One Soccer Nation. So it was great to connect with you guys down at the, down at the Magic City. Mike, can you just share um, how and why you got into architect? Well, you know, for some reason, I always grew up wanting to be an architect. I guess it was because growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, where which is, was a very traditional community when I was growing up, uh, there were a few modern buildings that I was attracted to. Uh, only a few, but I also grew up in a neighborhood that were they were building all new homes around me, and I used to love to just go watch them build homes. So I just was always attracted to the built environment and being an architect. And then uh, I kind of backed in sports architecture. I had a chance a long time ago to do um, first sports venue, which was a big coliseum here in Charlotte. And I liked it so much, I said, let's just focus on this for, for a living. Uh, so I made a career out of doing anything related to sports and entertainment, from arenas and stadiums and ballparks to theaters and even convention centers, anything that's a large public venue. That's amazing. How many designs have you worked on? Oh, gosh, hundreds, maybe maybe thousands. I stopped counting. I would say thousands, probably. Yeah, probably thousands. Got it. Kristen, what about you? Well, you know, I had a pretty unique upbringing. Um, my parents, from the moment I was six months old, we moved uh, on average about every two years because of my dad's work. He worked for a large international company, and they were moving him all the time. And... So I was, you know, went from Ecuador to Miami to Brazil to Italy, just kept moving to different places. And uh, my parents were always very much into art and architecture. And it was very typical for us, you know, to explore these new cities and go look at the buildings and the places. And, at the, you know, I was learning a new language. Um, I was uh, discovering an entire new space. I didn't know where anything was, you know, I was going to... Uh, uh, to to new buildings, to new churches, to new schools, to new, and you know the environment as well as the culture would change. And I think that was you know be, between what I was living in my house and what I was uh, experiencing seeing around us, I, I kind of really saw the importance in architecture and how important it was to creating like community and culture and identity and how like your entire world changed, you know, through this uh, uh, through the architecture. So. That was uh, one of the things. And then at school, I was always interested in art. Uh, when we would move, I, you know, imagine like a little kid saying, I'm not moving. I'm staying here. You guys can go unless, you know, uh, I can take art classes, you know, because a lot of the schools, they didn't have a lot of art uh, programs. 
And they would literally go and talk to the school so I could take art every day. So it was like in art classes with different, like, uh, not with my same class. So I was really into that. And as, you know, as in high school and stuff, I was really into physics as well. And, you know, like chemistry. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a doctor or not. I was somewhere between artists and like physics, right? And, you know, it all kind of came together with, for me uh, junior and senior year. And I really started looking at architecture as something that kind of would use those two sides that I had of kind of this technical, you know, uh, almost like math oriented um, approach to things. And then this artistic kind of expressive that has to do more with like emotional and spiritual and, and, um, and cultural things. So yeah, I think that was it for me. And then I ended up applying to RISD which kind of is a very kind of design-oriented school, but also uh, technically um, very challenging. So, you know, that's where it all came together for me. So, Kristen, as the public venue studio leader at Labella Associates, can you share some insights into how the design and architect of sports facilities impact the overall experience for players and fans alike? Sure. Um, architects are basically experienced designers of the built world, right? And really, there's very few building types where the skill of experienced design is more important than the design of sports and entertainment facilities, right? So at worst, a badly designed sports facility doesn't work well in terms of, you know, like functional terms, like providing good circulation, sight lines, team facilities, restrooms, concessions, lightings, sound, and even, you know, making sure that it has good access, right, for everybody. But a well-designed sports facility is unique to its location, its culture, its team, and its community. And you need to think of a 360-degree experience that includes very engaging things. For example, like having concourses um, with views to the action on the field, uh, premium suites, loge seating, lounges, drink rails. And amenities that also contribute to the local community during non-games, like, for example, stadium clubs that are open, you know, five, seven days a week, beer gardens, and the ability to host a variety of other event types. You know, we're seeing that um, these uh, uh, stadiums are becoming multi-use facilities that can have, you know, concerts and other types and different types of uh, sporting events in there as well. Nice. Would you say, Kristen, would you say you have as many done as many designs as Mike has? No, <laughs> I don't think anybody has done as many designs as Mike has. So I, I've got a few decades on Christian, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> yeah, he has time on me. And also Mike has been incredibly prolific. Um, you know, I, I kind of followed him to LaBelle Associates. Uh, we worked together about 25 years ago in the American Airlines Arena. And back then I was very impressed by him. And I felt that he was very much of a mentor. And when I had this opportunity, I said, hell, you know, to work with Mike, that's the best thing that can happen to you uh, in terms of uh, really learning about public uh, venues and sports and entertainment facilities. So, yeah, I've done tons of stuff, but certainly it comes to about the heels of where uh, Mike is in terms of the amount of stuff that he's done. Amazing. What would you, Kristen, what would you say is like the biggest key takeaway that you took from Mike's teachings or mentorship to you? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, there's different types of architects. And I think um, Mike is someone that really understands projects holistically. You know, he 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 understands the client, he puts the client's hat on. 
and also puts, you know, he's someone that has a high level of empathy. Um, so, you know, when we're looking at projects, you know, he really looks at the community, at the city, at the client, you know, um, everybody that's pretty much involved with a project. Of course, also the design and what the project is about. But I think a lot of architects don't. You know, I've worked with architects that make beautiful buildings, but they don't necessarily work that well in terms of the city, of the community, and also making sure that it pencils for the client. And I think that can be done. And I think Mike is really good at that. And, you know, I, every time we do projects together, I feel like I learn more about that and I become a better architect because that's what you have to do. You know, we, we, there's a lot of conversation around sustainability in design, but sustainability has many branches to it, right? And one of them is it has to be sustainable for the client. If it doesn't pencil in long term, it's not going to work and it's going to be bad for everyone. It needs to be sustainable for the city, for the town, for the community. It needs to be a place that works for them, not just during game day, right? And then there's the obvious sustainability, which has to do with what type of systems and building materials and, 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 and things like that we're working with to make sure that it's environmentally sustainable as well. But it really is a much bigger thing that most people realize. And to have that approach towards architecture, I think, is really important nowadays. Absolutely. Last off-topic question before I dive into this, uh, the questions I have here. Mike, who, you know, when you were um, in your early stages, who was your mentor and what was the biggest takeaway that you took from them? I don't think I, I can say I had one mentor. I think I had several. Uh, and maybe that's why I try to be uh, holistic in my approach. Um, two of my immediate bosses were uh, management types. They were more focused on good project management and good leadership and dealing with clients than they were on design. Uh, one of them was, uh, I would call him the, the architect's project manager. He, he actually trained architects when he was at Penn State uh, before joining our firm. Uh, and then I worked with well-known architect, design architects like at Architectonica. Uh, I've done work with Cesar Pelle and other very well-known architects design-wise. So I, I think balancing, uh, you know, good design, understanding the client's needs, and in the end, it's all about getting projects built, which some architects tend to forget about. And that means that not only do you have to do a design that can be implemented and with minimal constructability issues, but maybe even more importantly, it's a design that works for the client's budget uh, so we don't get in a difficulty trying to implement the grand vision. So it's always a balancing act between you know, the big idea and how you implement it in a, in a pragmatic way. Got it. Mike, in your role as a vice president and director of play market sector at Labella Associates, you specialize in designing indoor arenas, stadiums, ballparks, theaters, and mixed use sports and entertainment complexes. What are some key considerations when designing these spaces to, en to enhance fun functionality and aesthetics? Well, I I always look at things from the big picture in. So starting with the with the big picture and then getting more granular. And it's the same thing when you're talking about functionality. You know, with any real estate development deal and architecture, you know, designing stadiums and so forth is real estate. It's part of a you know real estate development. So location, location, location is always you know critical. 
so we try to find, you know, working with our clients, we try to find sites that have a great urban connection. And if not, we try to create ancillary developments around those facilities to make them for the larger uh, entertainment and mixed use development. So that's really important for success. But then as you get that site, that you find the optimum site, it's about how do people come to the site and flow through the facility and experience it, which is all part of the functionality of the venue. So whether it's traffic management, you know, where you park, how you get to the facility, it's crowd management, how you get from your parking lot through the entry gates, through a magnetometer or security, how you flow through a concourse and all the way to your seat. Uh, it's, uh, you know, part of that flow is what I call the concourse experience, which I define as really the second event. Uh, the main event, of course, is the game or whatever's happening on the event field. Um, but the second event is the concourse experience. It's where you go to grab a, a beer or a hot dog or meet your buddy and and are you, are you meeting before and after the game? So there's a lot of activity in that concourse and it needs to be able to handle crowds and not have long queue lines that take too long to be able to get your hot dog and you miss part of the game because you're waiting in line. So in terms of functionality, it's uh, again, designing things with minimum uh, queuing times, which means having enough restroom facilities, having enough food and beverage points of sale and enough merchandising area and getting those distributed properly. And that all helps to drive a nice flow through the facility. It reduces any crowd management issues and it also drives more revenues. Um, we look at things like the variety of food and beverage options. Uh, of course, the variety of seating options. In the old days, these were big structures and you went and you sat in your seat and watched the game you got a hot dog at halftime, and then at the end of the, end of the game, you left. Now these uh, facilities are really family entertainment venues, and having the ability to, if you're walking around the concourse, maybe you can see into the action, and you have places to view the game beyond just a traditional seat, whether it's a standing terrace or a drink rail or a party suite or a private suite or a stadium club or whatever. There's all kinds of different variety of seating. And that that's a functional element, but it also enhances that fan experience. Certainly premium opportunities in designing that. So you can service those areas. You can service the suites with food and beverage and the clubs and so forth, not only on game day, but throughout the week for non-game day activities. Uh, and then, of course, from the athlete side, they need to be able to arrive in a secure zone, have good changing facilities and warm-up facilities, easy access to the field. And then also part of that back of house, we call it, includes uh, whatever it takes to host a show, load in, load out, you know, how you bring services to the building, uh, how you provide necessary storage and uh, uh food and beverage preparation and so forth. So all of that drives the functionality of a building. But then the aesthetics of that really is uh, directly related, I think, to how we solve that in a creative way and how we use uh, these different things I just mentioned, how we, how we play up that aesthetically. For example, I said, first thing I said was 
these are no longer just big structures. They're, they're big structures, but they're not just designed as a structure. They're designed as architecture. They're designed as a place to entertain people. So everything that you experienced from walking down the concourse and seeing uh, wayfinding signage and graphics, that's colorful, it's clear, uh, maybe there's a TV with it so you can watch the game when you're walking down the concourse. You know, all those things are important. And we also look at uh, the, ex the example I can think of is when you went to an airport 30 or 40 years ago and you went down the concourse of an airport, it was basically a tunnel to get to your gate. You go down a major airport now in the concourse and they're like shopping malls. So that whole retail experience that merchandising and food and beverage opportunities in an airport, and it's the same thing in a, in a sports venue or an entertainment venue. People want to be entertained. They want to have a place to, to buy merchandise, uh, buy food and beverage, and so forth. And then using things like digital displays, whether it's a big video screen or whether it's ribbon boards and so forth, anything that to help animate it. So I, I look at this as not so much aesthetics in terms of architecture, but aesthetics in terms of the fan experience and what we can do to really ramp that up. Because in the end, when fans are leaving, they're not, most fans are not thinking about the architecture. They're thinking about not only the game, but the fan experience and how much they enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike, uh, for sharing that so much. I'm so, I appreciate you guys, again, taking the time, the experience that you guys have, the knowledge um, that you're sharing on this call, me just listening, I'm just, I'm learning so much as we speak. And uh, it's so cool just to, like I'm visualizing everything that you're saying. With saying that, when I think about architect, I think about real life, uh, um, I'm making up a name here, real life coders. Like there's coders that code uh, on the computer to create softwares and stuff like that on, um, uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the computer. And then we have the meta. These are virtual reality uh, experiences, but you guys are creating real life experiences that people can go and, and touch and experience. Mike, when you when you talk about management of traffic um, from, from fans, crowds to 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 um, traffic on the road and how that's all facilitated, uh, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you guys come come across? And, and Kristen, you could uh, piggyback off this as well. Well, I think the biggest challenge we have is if things aren't properly planned in advance. So, uh, you know, part of designing these facilities is thinking about it on game day and non-game day use. And what time is the start of the game? Is, is it at the same time people are leaving the office and you have congestion? Uh, you know, it doesn't uh, speak well to a venue when it takes an hour and a half to get into the parking lot then you miss the first 30 minutes of the game. So having you know, proper access ways, uh, lots of entrances and exits from the parking area so that you're not spending three hours in traffic trying to watch a game. So I, I think that's pretty critical. And it all requires planning up front, whether it's with the architects or the site designers or traffic engineers and working with the municipality. Yeah, that, that yeah. Well, sorry, Kristen, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, playing on the uh, on the allegory that you gave with uh, software and, you know, it it, it 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 matches in the sense also that, you know, you're you're doing an, an experience design and also 
you know, there's a lot of data out there. So what Mike's, uh, you know, to Mike's point, you know, you're you're looking at a stadium um, that's going to be kind of a new node in a way to a town or a city, but it's part of a larger network. So, you know, we work closely um, uh, with uh, environmental engineers and other engineers, and you start looking at, you know, what's the infrastructure that actually exists right now? What do all these arteries going through? Uh, you know, uh, how much flow do they have? Where do they lead? You know, where would people park and what, how how many people would walk to the stadium and how many people would drive to the stadium what does the public transportation look like in the area and you start kind of modeling all of these things and you can you know before you put the first breakdown so to speak you kind of um has a have a pretty good sense by looking at the data and what's there and analyzing it you know uh what needs to be done and in some cases you know there's an amazing infrastructure and it not so much needs to be done and in other cases you need to build a lot of parking and a lot of structures and you know you 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 have to kind of invest more um and making sure that the infrastructure can support something like a stadium you know that could have 10 20 you know 60,000 um uh, seats got it and I, I you know Kristen, i forgot that you're a tech guy too so i forgot about that and tech is involved before like you guys have to do renderings and do all the infrastructure and so on and so forth before it actually comes to life. So there is that digital aspect to it as well. Chris, there is. Yeah, yeah, there absolutely is. There's a lot of technology that we can use nowadays, uh, both for kind of designing, planning, visualizing, and modeling um, things, everything from, you know, uh, traffic to sound to light to, uh, you know, to shadows. And also, you know, and uh, uh, optimizing how the thing is put together and built. Is there any new technologies that you guys are using from AI to to anything like a, a meta to to visual to experience the the design that you guys are creating? So obviously, you know, we use the latest and greatest kind of programs. Everything from um, you know working very quickly in SketchUp to come up with the designs to, um, uh, uh, and it's not something we use all the time, but that it's available. And I know it's been used in several projects to things like grasshopper and parametric design to be able to design, uh, you know, kind of complex shapes and things like that. And, you know, when you get down to the engineering, like I said, there's a lot of software um, that is amazing for, uh, for modeling things that you need to kind of visualize and design for before, uh, like how uh, sound is gonna affect um, the environment, you know, once uh, this project is built and, you know, how many decibels and in what direction and how's it's going to balance and how's it going to affect the communities around it. Uh, uh, these kinds of things that software that really, really can help you uh, do this. As far as AI, you know, AI is something that's pretty new. Um, computer vision is something that's very interesting and it's exciting for our architects that will, I'm sure it's going to help us you know, visualize and model and, and 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 kind of get very quick ideas of how things look like and how they may impact the surroundings. I think probably within the next 10 years, uh, apart from the way it's being used in other industries, um, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, very specific software that you, that is customized for individual offices and architects um, where they can um, 
use it as to assist us to kind of come up with projects that are similar in terms of the characteristics and 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 things that are important to us everything from the aesthetic to the kind of functional aspects that we um are are um are concerned with i know there's already some teams putting these kinds of things together so i think there's some exciting things in the near future uh, you know, most companies are not doing much with it right now. Uh, most of it is the potential uh, that the software has and how quickly it's growing. So I think definitely if we we talk probably within the next two to three years, there's going to be some uh, really exciting things to talk about. And we're talking about technology. So maybe that's a good segue into talking about how technology is used uh, in stadiums, especially to enhance the fan experience. And I would, I would say that's the, probably the foremost uh advantage of technology, but you think about uh, the fan experience, people use that term fan experience a lot. What does it really mean? Well, it means in my mind, first of all, you have to be comfortable. Uh, if you're not comfortable, you're not going to enjoy the experience. And that's more of a design and you know, providing a comfortable seat and shade and so forth. Uh, but also things I mentioned before about minimizing wait times. Uh, at a concession stand, for example. So we're doing things, for example, with cashless systems. We're using, instead of more traditional concession stands now, we're seeing more and more um, of uh, food markets uh, where you come in and you swipe your card and, and it's grab and go, basically. And that dramatically improves the, uh, the revenue as well as the wait time to grab your merchandise and not miss any of the game. Obviously, things like audio and video are certainly important. Uh, I mean, audio, if anything,'s probably been overdone. You go to a game now and it's like a concert and a game broke out. <laughs> so uh, sometimes I wish they'd turn the speaker down somewhat, but uh, yeah, audio is certainly important. But on the video side, it, well, anything video, anything visually related, I mean, you're there to be comfortable to hear the game, to watch the game. So good sight lines, good graphic displays, and the video scoreboard and ribbon boards and so forth to help tell the story of the game and give you some insights. And of course, all that technology has been improving through the years. The cost of that technology has been coming down. So the applicability continues to, to grow. And if the, of course, things like you know Wi-Fi is important to stay connected uh, to your team and for your team to stay connected to each uh, each of the fans. Um, but you don't want to miss the game. So if you're in the concourse, you know, you want to have TV monitors there, you want to have digital displays, hopefully open concourses so you can see the game. And then if if you're if you're at the uh at the TV watching a game, uh you know, you're you're the broadcasting of that experience is good. So having the right broadcasting equipment and all is important. So all that adds up to uh, how we use technology, which is so important. Yeah. Tristan, did you want to come in here? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I agree with what he's saying. And I think that, you know, we could talk probably for hours about kind of all the innovations that are coming, everything from sustainable building design, um, you know, prefab modular, uh, you know, apps, and, you know, Mike touched on these things, uh, USB ports, super fast internet, right? Um, 
ordering from your seat, uh, you know, and also things that, you know, uh, uh, you know, Mike was mentioning uh, this idea of, of having this retail and concourse experience and all these things that we're borrowing from the hospitality industry as well. Right. So, I mean, you can see that uh, we are and other companies as well are integrating hotels and, you know, you can be in your hotel room that is integrated into the seating bowl and you're literally watching the game or including things like Michelin, you know, uh, starred restaurants uh, and beer gardens uh, into, into the experience. And in many ways, um, to do this smoothly from an operational point of view, uh, you need to integrate tech. 100, yeah, 100%. And tech make, makes things so convenient, makes things faster. Um, you know, one of the relationships that I know that you guys have a close one with is USL. Um, what other partnerships or, or sports entities do you guys work closely with? Well, we, we have a lot of what I would call one-off projects. And then we have long-term relationships with uh, groups like the USL. Uh, I would say uh, in the world of baseball, we've done oh half a dozen or so ballparks in the last dozen or so years. And uh, those are more one-off relationships where we have either a relationship with the team or uh, with the municipality. Um, we have some long-term relationships with certain universities. We've done Liberty University, for example, in Virginia. We've done all of their sports facilities over the last 12 years or so. It's been maybe eight or nine different venues. Uh, but the USL clearly is our number one focus right now. We have... Uh, I think we've worked in about 30 or 32 states uh, doing uh, both master plan studies, concept studies, and we're working with those clients to help make those projects implementable. Meaning, you know, how do you, how do you finance them? Uh, how do you right size the project for the market and for the financial capability of that particular client? And do we uh, look at ways to incorporate other mixed use components could be at retail dining other entertainment multifamily hotel whatever which helps make the overall project uh more financeable but so that's uh i would say the usl is clearly our number one focus right now as far as our sports and entertainment practice understood with you know usl being that lead there's a lot of exciting things happening in America in regards to soccer on both the men's and women's. We got Copa America. We got the World Cup, 2020, the 2026 World Cup, um, the Olympics, a whole bunch of events. Um, how is this momentum affecting, um, you know, the growth of USL and your partnership with them? Well, I'll start. Christian may want to add to this, but... Go ahead. Uh, Goodness gracious. When I when I was growing up, I think we had one one hour PE class about soccer. <laughs> and now kids today, uh, you know, soccer is most of the kids are playing soccer, more so than football, more than baseball, more than basketball. So there's just that awareness of the game of soccer in the US has grown exponentially. And then uh, you know, the world's a smaller and smaller place and it's connected with uh, computers and TV, and we can watch events all over the world. So 
that's helped. And then you get a Messi or somebody that joins Inter Miami and what a difference that makes in promoting soccer in this country. Um, but I think the, the in the USL in particular, but I would say also Major League uh, Soccer, gosh, back in late 90s, early 2000s, the, uh, the model for Major League Soccer is they had to have their own stadium. So they can control the revenue streams, control the seating and the premium revenues and so forth. Uh, and back then, that meant you couldn't spend more than about $40 million to build a, a stadium that worked with their financial capabilities. A 40 became 60, which became 80. And now the latest uh, MLS stadium in New York, I think it's about $750 million. So certainly the... Uh, the, the the brand of soccer has grown dramatically. Uh, the facilities have grown to support it. And part of the reason why is, again, it's all about entertainment. If you go to a venue and it's a boring facility and you just have a place to get to your seat and watch the game and leave, you're missing out so much compared to a facility that it's, again, like that airport concourse, it has all the retail and the dining and, and other great opportunities that drive entertainment for that event and family entertainment. Uh, so uh, I think that's really important in terms of driving the business of soccer in this country. Yeah, I agree with that. And it makes it more friendly to, um, you know, the, the entire family. Right. So now you can go with your kids, with your wife, with, you know, you can go with people that are fanatics of soccer, but you can also go uh, with people that are going for a different experience. Uh, you know, for me, you know, specifically related to your question. Yeah, I, I kind of saw it. Um, you know, I like I said, I moved around a lot and I played soccer my whole life. Uh, my dad, he was um, uh, when he went to college, he was asked to play professionally uh, in Chile. Um, way back in the day. So he was big on sports. He was big on soccer. So we played since we were very little. And I had played in Brazil and Italy. And then we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, this is in the 80s. Um, and I remember in my school and in my high school, you know, soccer was pretty big, you know, and it was the kind of thing that you would go to the the my friends, you know, uh, spend the night at my friends' houses, you know, uh, and uh, talk to the parents. And they had no idea about this game, right? So you could see that the younger generations were already kind of playing it and enjoying it. And it was something, and I think that's something that happened in the States quite a bit. And then obviously, you know, with, with the World Cup and then MLS, you know, just created this larger wave that kind of brought it to everybody else. And obviously with mass media, you know, you have the ability to uh, kind of check out and look at a uh, 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 all these amazing leagues worldwide once you start getting into it. And obviously that adds fuel to the fire. And I really do believe that MLS really helped bring that wave. And now USL is tipping it. And, and you know, things like Copa America and the World Cup, I think are coming at that moment, right? And you can see this almost in every single industry, right? You have these curves, you know, where it go like this. And suddenly if something happens at a very early stage, it doesn't make mu it doesn't make a huge difference, right? But if already you have this foundation that Mike laid out so well, and you have this wave coming, 
and we're putting money and time and making this whole experience kind of reach the entire family, right? And much more uh, easily consumed to the to Americans in general. And you're already here, and then suddenly you give it an extra push with the Copa America and with the World Cup. I think that's really going to accelerate this. And like you know, we saw it at Soccer X, and we see it um, with a uh, uh, big time uh, soccer clubs that are interested from Europe and other places that are interested in franchising here in the U.S. You know, there's a lot of energy in the industry, and I think it has to do with that fact that we're in that tipping point. And I think the World Cup. Uh, uh, and what's happening with with the USL as well uh, and MLS soccer really could be like that last little push that's really going to mainstream. You know, you're seeing in the US uh, soccer almost kind of overpass, uh, kind of uh, uh, becoming more popular than baseball. And, you know, we, you're seeing baseball stadiums that are being turned into soccer stadiums, right? Um, you know, we're working on a few of those. So I think the signs that kind of support um, what we're saying as well. And, and going back to the United Soccer League for a minute, uh, you know, Major League Soccer reaches a lot of major markets and has a, a growing following on TV. But the great thing about the United Soccer League is it's reaching a lot more markets. Some of those are smaller markets and mid-sized markets, but it's uh, it's reaching out to a lot more markets and giving a lot more uh, exposure to uh, fans to watch live soccer. Um, that's been a big push, I think. And you know, I think baseball, a lot of the success of baseball is it created, you know, the AAA and AA, single A teams, and they play in cities all over America. And you go in Europe, every city in Europe has at least one soccer stadium, many of them, like a London or Places like that have almost a stadium on every block, it seems like. They have yeah. multiple teams, and each team tends to take the character of that neighborhood, like Chelsea and the Chelsea neighborhood. And um, So I think that's going to happen with USL. We're, we're looking at not only extending the reach of soccer across the country, but uh, in some markets – we're looking at having more than one USL team in a market and in, in a larger market. Wow. That's, that's music to my ears. Um, I'm just so excited where soccer is in, in America and just the momentum. Cause you know, I come from, you know, I'm a soccer guy. So I come from playing from grassroots all the way to semi-pro levels. The last time I played with was Naples United. I've seen the NPSL. So division four in the U S soccer pyramid. And I really love what USL is doing. Um, I listened to a, a few of uh, Justin Papadotsky, uh, you know, interviews in regards to what they're doing at USL and their prime focus is, is, you know, the real estate aspect. We touched on it, like you touched on it here a little bit in regards to mixed use development projects. And these are not, these are some really big projects, um, wow. turning these projects, these soccer stadiums into mixed use development projects. And, you know, this is a lot of capital that we're talking about, uh, injecting into building you know, soccer stadiums, you know, whether it's uh, business offices, residential homes, uh, parking lots or, or condos, whatever the case may be. What is the biggest project that you guys have worked on with USL this far, if you're able to share? Uh, I would say dollar wise, the largest so far is the Tidewater Stadium in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. 
And quite frankly, it's the largest, uh, partly because that's a very expensive market. <laughs> and the heavy union, and we, that project was bid uh, as we were coming out of the downturn from COVID. And you know what happened with construction costs? They just went ballistic. So that's one reason that was a more expensive venue, but it's also, uh, you know, it's a large 11,000 seat facility. It's got, you know, state of the art team facilities, spectator facilities. It's got uh, suites and clubs and so forth. Uh, and it's also an expensive site. It's a brownfield site. So it was rather expensive to develop. That's probably uh, the largest, but you know, I. I mentioned earlier that every, I don't care what the project is, there's always budget challenges. Every client and every architect for that matter wants to do more than the available dollars will allow. And especially when you have a, an inflationary period that can be very challenging. So um, what we have to focus on, what we do focus on is several things. First of all, to whatever extent we can get both public and private dollars going in to fund these projects, it makes them so much more viable. Trying to do these is 100% private in any sport, unless you're in New York City or LA, trying to do these as 100% private developments is almost impossible. So getting uh, public dollars is, is the first step that we always help to push for. The second thing then, is okay now you've got all the revenue you can get and you're over budget let's say how do you keep it this within budget well either you find a way to reduce the cost or drive more revenues and we look at doing both uh we look at driving costs down by looking at the program and seeing what's most critical and then i'll let christian speak about modular construction and ways we can use modular technologies to not only speed up construction, but also save some of the capital cost. And then to the extent we can find creative ways to drive more revenues, whether it's creating a soccer stadium as a multi-purpose venue that can also have maybe professional lacrosse or rugby and concerts. And maybe this is a stadium club that's used every day of the year. You know, to the extent you drive more revenues, your financial pro forma improves and then the private investment can be higher for that stadium, especially in terms of premium uh, seating, premium suites and clubs and so forth. But Christian may want to speak to the modular uh, concepts that he's been working on as a way also to drive costs down and make these more uh, financially feasible. Yeah, I think there's two parts to your question. Um, one of them is, I think one of what one of the interesting aspects of what we're seeing with these projects is that they generally, you know, not always, but they generally tend to be sports anchored mixed use developments. And, you know, that kind of changes the dynamic, right? Because if you, you, you were only thinking of these projects as a stadium, right? For owners, for example, for the people that are financing the project, um, it may not be as interesting from a business point of view, but when you when you think of some of these uh, uh, projects, you know, um, you on the one side you have cities that are very interested um, in kind of revitalizing a certain area, for example, or a community, or you know, an area that's depressed. There's many areas that have become um, 
uh, quite depressed with COVID, you know, people moving out to the suburbs or, and, you know, they want to revitalize an area and sports and entertainment venues are a great way to do it, right? Um, they kind of uh, uh, give, uh, 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 they energize an area, right? And you can build around them uh, restaurants, uh, uh, shopping areas, retail. You can have, you know, music venues um, around it. You can build residential communities around it, right? Um, that are part of these like really cool, hip, you know, live, work, play uh, uh, communities, you know, that attract a lot of people. And 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 a great part of that's done by the stadium. Now, when you look that, at that as a project, as a whole project, right? It's a great benefit for the city if done right, you know? Um, uh, there's a long-term, you know, kind of taxable base um, which uh, uh, increases over time, which is really exciting for them, and and and, and all these, you know, uh, amenities also for the community. And on the other side, for the owners, there's these great real estate plays as well, right? Where where you're hedging and kind of diversifying your investment over several different several different building types, right? And you're also investing in residential and all these other things. So. Um, I think that's one of the things is, is these building types. And we're doing some incredible projects right now in different parts of the states um, where we have, you know, a stadium mix, a stadium anchored mixed use developments where we have, you know, indoor sports facilities, you know, and concert venues that that uh, 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 that integrate like the practice field as like an open air venue as well. Um, where there is hotels, where there is residential, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think that's one of the things that really pencils these things in. Um, another thing is, you know, like Mike said, there's many ways in which you can decrease the general cost of the project. And one of the things that we're looking at, given the current market volatility um, with the price of construction and just, you know, when there's volatility, where there's change, right? There's the Delta, uh, it's hard to kind of, uh, uh, um, plan things like I'm getting, you know, I'm looking at my performer and I'm looking at my five to 10 years and it says one thing, but suddenly, you know, a variable like construction costs, materials, logistics, everything goes up. And then, you know, the project goes out the door. So one of the things that we do as a company is to try to see how can we, with the architecture, with construction systems, such as modular and prefab, we can bring down the cost of the project while maintaining the program that we have previously uh, looked at for a project. So there's amazing things going on with that right now. There is a lot of different systems. Um, we did a study, you know, looking at everything from, you know, prefabricated steel or aluminum uh, systems to things like stack modular that you can in a factory uh, um, uh, build these, you know, 60 foot or 30 foot or 20 foot, depending on the project by 14 feet wide, or 11 foot uh, and a half feet wide modules that can be manufactured in a manufacturing plant anywhere in the world um, and uh, be fully finished, you know, for them to be structural, structural and be fully finished uh, and shipped and just plugged in, you know, basically crane lifted into place and just plugged in. It's like a plug and play module. These things are exciting, right? Because you're you're limiting your cost, um, and you're you can really uh, um, uh, uh, kind of plan and make sure that in a manufacturing facility uh, where your costs are probably going to be the variability and it's going to be very low, 
and also you can speed up a project where you know during the design phase and while you're uh, working on the actual uh, uh, site development the things are being manufactured and then in a very short period of time they can be stacked and installed in place and what we're looking at for example in in in, in another project is you know you can look at things like for example maybe that stadium at some point is returned to the community and can be used reutilized in a different location right so like the owner can think of the stadium maybe even as a temporary facility where there another stadium gets built once uh, the project advances and it can be given you know to a park or to a community or to a university or to a high school and you can reutilize these parts which is also i think a very exciting thing but you know there are many systems where you can actually bring the uh, dollar per square foot value down as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of systems with, especially in the seating um, areas and the grandstand areas where there is considerable um, uh, uh, savings. And, you know, you can maybe where you could have done a much smaller stadium, you can get the amount of seating that you would like to have at the same price with these systems. Amazing. Uh Kristen, Mike, I appreciate you guys taking the time so much. I love the work that you guys are doing. I'm so excited for USO and what they're doing. And, you know, as as once, you know, we're on the One Soccer Nation podcast right now, but in regards to the One Soccer Nation project, you know, I look forward to, to, to hopefully working with you guys in the future and launching a, a mixed use development project in USL. So super excited for the future. I'm glad that we connected at SoccerX in Miami. Uh, and I, I hope to continue to build our relationship. Uh, so once again, Kirsten, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time for joining us on the One Soccer Nation podcast. Thanks, Kareem. Thanks, enjoyed it. Was a it. Pleasure.